Mr. Speaker. You're at the intersection of business and politics. This is the 14th and G podcast from Melman Consulting. Now, here's our host, Dean Hinkson. Thank you for setting your podcast out of 14th and G. I am your host, Dean Hinkson, thinking that Labor Day was long ago and summer is definitely settling down. The break is over. And with 123 days to go until the first votes are cast in the Iowa caucuses, we are ramping up for the 60th, the 60th presidential election in American history. And with razor thin margins in both the House and Senate, control of the Hill is most assuredly on the ballot. The Republicans are sorting themselves out in a field of a dozen or so candidates, depending on whom you count as serious, with one 800-pound gorilla uh, they all have to contend with. For Democrats, the goal is clear and straightforward. Re-elect the president. But friends, we do not live in clear and straightforward times. The president is 80 years old. He'd be 86 at the end of a second term. And the chattering classes, as the chattering classes do, are just before wetting themselves at the prospect of a Trump restoration. Unease over age and a brewing ethics scandal, now an impeachment inquiry, uh, cloud the picture for the president's re-election. And that, that is why I'm glad to have my good friend, the editor and publisher of Inside Elections, Nathan Gonzalez, here to help me break it all down. Nathan, welcome to 14th and G. Thank you for having me. And I feel like already at the beginning, I need to fact check you. You said 800 pound gorilla when former President Donald Trump, I believe, <laughs> told the Fulton County Sheriff he was 6'3", 215, which would put him about the same body type of uh, Aaron Rodgers, uh, uh, whether he's on a cart being there, wheeled off the field or not. So. There was a long list of uh, a long list of very well known athletes uh, who have the same BMI. But thank you for having me. But thank, I, it's all, always a pleasure. The same BMI as the former president. Nathan, it's great to see you. You know, let's sort of uh, here we are. We're, we're rolling into the fall of the odd numbered year with the presidential election around the corner. So let's level set it at where we are uh, in the Republican primary process. The open-ended party without the White House is want to do. Everybody wants a shot. You know, I think of, in traditional terms, John McCain looked really good at some point in the 2000 election. Hillary Clinton was a cinch uh, for the nomination in 2008. You know, those were two of the most hotly contested uh, primary fields probably in, in our adulthood. Trump's the presumptive nominee today. So... Where did things, think of it in traditional terms, where did things turn for McCain and Clinton from, you know, looking really good, absolutely inevitable, and, and where is Trump relative to that sort of traditional place in the primary process? Yeah, well, it's tough to compare history and tradition and anything that has to do with Donald Trump, because it feels <laughs> like it's, he's never anywhere near what, what has been. I think that Trump is the clear front runner, as you said. And I am waiting for evidence to prove how he is going to lose this. I think one of the mistakes from the beginning that some of his opponents made is thinking that this race, everyone started at the same starting line. When Trump started this race, if it was a running race, he started 300 yards ahead and everyone was playing catch up. And now we've seen whether it's the national Republican, national polling, which we don't have a national race or early state polling, that Trump continues to have a lead and sometimes has some places extended his lead over Governor Ron DeSantis and the rest of the field. 
and I remain skeptical that he is going to falter as the front runner and that he will, I think he will be the nominee unless the dynamic of the race changes from candidates attacking him. I mean, you've been doing campaigns and been around campaigns long enough that in order to beat a candidate, you usually have to attack that front runner and bring them down. And they're not, you know, in some way, they're defending him on some of his most vulnerable issues, like uh, his his legal his legal issues. So I I expect him to be the nominee. Well, and obviously, you know these these folks uh, the, these folks are trying to appeal to voters uh, who hold a very very high opinion uh, of of the former president. And you know I get it, but there, there's just no. You're right. There's no head on tackling of Trump, uh, though there seems to be a lot you could tackle. There seems to be not a lot of creativity in terms of like you're you're in there a lot of these people are serious uh you know they're serious people nikki haley is a former governor former u.n ambassador tim scott is a sitting united states senator mike pence is the former vice president of the united states ron DeSantis is 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 a twice uh, elected governor of a very large state and there just seems to be very little inter- – it seems like a lot of folks got in and, and they want to sort of be there to pick up the pieces uh, when they think when he he's gets gonna- in, When Trump gets indicted four times. Yeah. But, but that hasn't – you know, he hasn't faltered. He hasn't – that support hasn't lost. And I think the, the candidates continue to be gripped by the fear of losing his supporters. I think maybe a couple of years ago there was a fear of Trump himself. I'm not sure that that's it, but it's a fear of turning off – his supporters that they know that they need in order to win the nomination. And so we just continue on this status quo path of Trump being the leader as Iowa gets closer and closer. Well, let's look at the rest of that field here for a second and and get back to the former president. The big things at this point, polling in in the early states in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, money, uh, fundraising is probably the most prominent metric um, and, and momentum, who's, who's, moving, who's moving up and, and, and who's moving down. DeSantis, Scott, Haley, Pence as sort of the four probably most serious candidates. Uh, Chris Christie seems in there, it seems to be in there only as a potential spoiler. Ramaswamy. Ramaswamy. The, there's always, what is it with, you know, Ramaswamy, there's always a, a Herman Cain, an Andrew Yang, an and entrepreneur slash businessman no one's ever heard of, and, and they get traction in a, in a presidential I think it primary. shows that there is, a, there is a skepticism of politicians right now, or a deep distrust or even a hate of politicians. So if someone comes in who doesn't fit the typical mold, who even looks different than the rest of the, the field, I think there is a, an openness. And I, but what we've seen in the debate... I think Ramaswamy had his moment uh, to kind of elevate himself to be an equal with the rest of the field, but now we're weeks away from that, and I don't we ha- we haven't seen a a real bump for him coming out of that. We've seen that a little more we've we've seen a little more wackiness out of him. Well, um, and this is interesting because <laughs> so many candidates complain like, well, if people knew me or they heard more from me, I would be I would be doing better. And this might be the case where as people hear more or learn more, whether not as sure whether they want to be on board, uh, you know, on the Ramaswamy train. Yeah. Well, I, I look at the sort of the four, the four, we'll call them sort of establishment candidates, people who've held high office, who have, who actually have a, a, a brand uh, in Republican politics. And right. I put that as DeSantis, Haley, Scott and Pence. Yep. Where do you see it? What's the polling telling you? Who's got momentum? Uh, who's, who's raising money? 
Well, first, we have to say that the polling shows that Trump is ahead. Of the rest of the field, I don't think anyone really has momentum, at least upward momentum right now. I would rather be Tim Scott or Nikki Haley in the race. And that might be a little counterintuitive because DeSantis is still usually ahead of both of them, no matter which poll you look at. But I feel like voters have had a long look at DeSantis now for most of the year, even though he announced uh, he announced a little bit later than some of the others. And voters aren't buying it. Um, but I think that there was less familiarity with a Nikki Haley or a Tim Scott. I think Senator Scott is in a good position. That sounds strange considering uh, he's not, he's trying to crack double digits in the polls. Uh, but one thing that he has that is his other opponents don't have is money. And he has the ability to be on television in the early states trying to communicate. I think he talks about his faith in a, in a, in a way that can connect with important evangelical voters in the primary. And I think there are some Republicans who like the idea of nominating someone, uh, someone of color, uh, you know, someone who's different uh, to kind of show liberals and Democrats that they're not just the party of white people. So I, I think Tim Scott is going to be in this race for a while and is someone to watch. And he's also got a secret weapon, his mother. That's always helpful. That's always helpful. <laughs> if mama doesn't love you, nobody loves you. And then, of course, there's the former vice president of the United States, Mike Pence. It's it's a tough lane for Pence. You know, he's um, it's it's hard to see in a Republican primary context exactly the voters he's going to appeal to. Arguably not a lane at all, Dean, um, and what he's trying to uh, I, I believe Mike Pence is perfectly positioned for the 2012 Republican nomination. You know, he is he is a, a solid conservative, but doesn't have the style that Republican primary voters are looking for anymore. And for those voters who want to turn the page from Trump. He was Trump's vice president for four years. And for those people who want someone like Trump, they feel like he didn't do the right thing on January 6th. And so they're, the, the amount of voters that are in the middle between those two camps, I think, is pretty slim. Uh, there was a funny incident a few weeks ago. Uh, Pence was at a campaign event uh, in a look like a diner. Some guy comes in, just starts reading him the riot act. You ought to be deported. Get out of here. What are you doing? <laughs> Pence turns around and goes, I'm going to put you down as a maybe. <laughs> I love it. And you know that he probably paused just to make sure that someone laughed and got that it was a joke, just just to make sure. But <laughs> I, I love he, it. He did not say, please clap. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, that, that's not that doesn't do well for your campaign. Well, Nathan, then there's the uh, the 800 pound gorilla we've discussed a little bit, and that is the former president of the United States who's a candidate in this primary. Trump has done look, I you know, Trump has done a very good job of creating uh, this aura of inevitability around his candidacy. Uh, the polling bears that out. Let me ask you this way. Iowa and New Hampshire are famously hands on primaries. These are intimate events. You go into people's living rooms, uh, voters in those states want to see you, touch you, feel you. So it, it really, you know, with someone without a lot of name ID like Trump has, there, there's a there's a way here for Trump to get beat or to have a to have a second place finish. Would would a would a not first place finish in either of those first two states puncture that aura of inevitability. I mean, that's the flip side of it, right? Would it puncture that aura of inevitability and give some of these other candidates uh, a chance to gain on him? Well, first, I think the retail 
the retail experience that Iowa and New Hampshire uh, have traditionally offered, that was punctured by Trump in 2016. Now, he did not fit the mold of the traditional retail candidates, and, and and he has continued that. He literally flies in on a helicopter or a plane, does an event, shows up at the fair, you know, shows up for a debate and then and then leaves. And so I, I believe Iowa is critical. Iowa is not critical in that the use Iowa does not have a good track record of of choosing the the next nominee or the next president of the United States. But that is a place where someone has to make a stand. And if Trump if Trump finishes second, or if Trump doesn't win Iowa, then things are getting a little more interesting. If Trump wins Iowa, I think then he rolls into New Hampshire and the snowball keeps rolling, keeps rolling down, rolling down the hill. And I know there was a lot that the Trump supporters were making about his trial date uh, being uh, March 5th, the day after Super Tuesday and how, oh, well, he can't, you know, it's right in the middle of the campaign. It's possible that the Republican nomination is essentially that the race is over by the time we get to Super Tuesday. If Trump wins Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, then it's just it's just uh, details at that yeah, point. Yeah, that that third state is really interesting because you know South Carolina, uh, it, it the uh, Trump is enormously popular there, and then you've got two, <laughs> the two two of the best well known politicians. From the state of South Carolina, Nikki Haley, former governor, and Tim Scott, the sitting United States senator. I mean, is am I reading this wrong? It's just going to split the South Carolina, the the non-Trump South Carolina vote, right? It's almost right. a fait accompli, right? And that's where, uh, in talking with some Iowa Republicans, they know they might not be a bellwether, but thinking that Iowa should be an opportunity to narrow the field, that if. Nikki Haley and Tim Scott continue on after Iowa, then it just ends up with the same dynamic that everyone has been predicting, that a large field divides the anti-Trump vote and he just continues on uh, with his plurality until eventually he has a majority and wins the nomination for a third time. <laughs> and that's uh, that's looks like where we're headed until proven otherwise. Getting into William Jennings Bryan territory, though, uh, at least he's had one win. There we go. Yeah, yeah. It's, it doesn't always <laughs> line up. Yeah. Well, there is another side uh, to, to the nominating contest. There's another party uh, with a sitting United States president uh, in, in in Joe Biden. Obvious question. Uh, do you see anything in the polling, in the in the in the momentum, in the money that tells you that RFK Jr. Uh, is is a serious challenger to the sitting president of the United States and the full might of the Democratic National Committee, which will come against him. I don't see RFK Jr. as a serious candidate, um, at least a serious threat to Biden. If you look at it, he is more popular with Republicans than he is with Democrats. I think Republicans like the idea of Biden being in some sort of threat, you know, some sort of threat to him or vulnerable. And 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 uh, but when you talk to Dean and you and I, the Democrats that we talk to here in town, they don't. There, no one, no one's on board with RFK Jr. They may, they may not be extremely happy with Biden or completely convinced that Biden is the best candidate to get behind in the in the 2024 election. But they're not going to support RFK Jr. And we had a test run of this in early August when Congressman Dean Phillips, a Democrat from uh, the Twin Cities area, he popped up and started talking about there needing to be a serious primary and how yeah. you know, thanking thanking Biden and saying. Uh, thank you for your service, but it's time to have someone else. And I was talking to another Democratic member uh, off the uh, well, off the record or without attribution, and they said, "You'll notice that 
no one else got up or and said, hey, we're with Dean Phillips or we, we agree. He was out there on an island because Democrats believe that a unified party, even behind a flawed candidate, is the best strategy, not only to keep the White House, but to win in the House and the Senate. Yeah, but Nathan, I, I guess the last uh, the last serious challenger to a sitting president that got primaried uh, was RFK Jr.'s uncle uh, Ted Kennedy. Primaried uh, sitting president, you know, uh, sitting president Jimmy Carter in 1980. Why isn't this more te- tempting to a Gavin Newsom or a Gretchen Whitmer? Uh, you know, fairly. You know, high name ID governors to say, Hey, I can come in here and and do a better job. I think they understand that the party wants to be unified. And if they pop up and primary, the president president still wins the nomination president loses the general election, then they are blamed for that. They're, they're blamed for dividing the democratic party and letting Trump or another Republican have have the White House back. That would be a career ender for a Democrat if you are blamed for electing Trump again. And those politicians you're talking about, they they believe they have futures, right? And they probably want to be president of the United States. And that is a that is a high risk, maybe high reward effort if you're going to challenge Biden, particularly at this stage. Man, yeah. you should have been bringing this up a year ago if you really wanted to do this. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is, is you know, we're in, in terms of process, it's it's pretty much too late uh, even to get in, to raise the money, to get your name on all the ballots. Yeah. And the challenge, well, the scenarios that could happen is that, you know, until we get to the convention or at the conventions, there could be a switch. I mean, I'm just trying to envision, let's say Biden, you know, Biden, and, or let's put Trump and Biden in the same category. They, they're sailing through the primary process in the spring and we get to the summer. Maybe Trump is a two-time felon. Uh, maybe Biden stumbles and falls or forgets where he is. And, and then both parties are searching. Then we're looking at a convention, you know, a convention situation where the parties are trying to change horses, not even midstream, but but going down the stretch. And that is what I'm trying to wrap my head around because the, the primaries aren't, don't look as competitive as the scenarios that could happen uh, post-primary. The mind reels. Democrats still have the superdelegate system in place or did that get scrapped post-Obama? You know, Dean, I think they still have superdelegates, um, but there's been the the emphasis or the, the positioning now is that they have tried, you know, they, they took Iowa out of the top spot. Iowa still, the Iowa caucus are still first for Republicans and New Hampshire, but New Hampshire is trying to still stay up in the calendar and they might punish New Hampshire and strip its delegates if it tries to have its primary ahead of South Carolina and Nevada, which Democrats are trying to elevate because they have more diverse electorates and more diverse populations. And they think they're more, you know, more of a representation of who the Democratic Party is today. I spent a little time in the New Hampshire delegation working for the great New Hampshire Senator Judd Gregg. A lot of things had to be run past longtime uh, Secretary of State Gardner uh, for its impact on New Hampshire's position in the primary process, truly. And it's having jealous guardians. being, Being first is important, right? I mean, you have every media. Uh, entities showing up, spending money. I mean, it is an economic boom. It's not just the political, it's not just the politics of it, but it's the the economics of it and being first. 
but you know Iowa really put the nails in their own coffin with the with the debacle that was the the 2020 Iowa caucuses on the on the Democratic side. Um, that was that was the yeah, we could smell that that was the end that night. Yeah, they uh, they didn't do themselves any favors. Well, let's 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 look down the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue because with a United States Senate where the Democrats enjoy a majority of one. Uh, after spending all of last Congress in a 50-50 power sharing arrangement with the Republicans in the House, uh, depending on the day, <laughs> Speaker McCarthy has a uh, four-seat majority, or uh, it's it's pretty much dead even, uh, depending on between, you know, we've had injuries, we've had deaths, uh, we've had retirements already uh, in this Congress. And so that bare thin majority of, of four or five out of 435 seats uh, can fluctuate. But let's look at the Senate, Nathan. You know, I don't see a great deal of challenge on uh, for Republican held seats. I guess maybe the, the Ted Cruz reelect in Texas is a little interesting just by uh, virtue of the fact that you have a sitting congressman in Colin Allred uh, who's going to give up his seat to make that run. But maybe, uh, you know, I I look at West Virginia, what's Joe Manchin going to do? Montana, John Tester will have will have a real race for reelection. But let's start with Arizona. It's 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 kind of fascinating. You've got uh, you've got Kerry Lake on the Republican side uh, who ran for governor. Blake Masters may get back in. Kirsten Sinema, who's not announced yet, is sitting in the middle and she's already got a Democratic challenger in sitting Congressman Gallego. <laughs> What's going to happen there? Good. I'm glad you Grand started Canyon with the State. easiest race, Dean. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah. So what what pieces are we waiting for? Uh, we don't know yet whether Sanders Cinema is going to run for re-election or not. Uh, she has not announced. We have to remember Arizona is a late primary. Uh, we're talking August as the primary. So the filing deadline is until, you know, end of spring, early summer. So she can drag this out. And I would argue it's to her benefit to drag it out, because if she announces today that she's not running for reelection, it would not only make this podcast a little dated, uh, but it would she would lose her leverage. Right. She would she wouldn't have as much her vote. I don't know, would mean as much uh, in the in these in these next few months. But she has a remarkable ability that she's about as unpopular with Republicans as she is with Democrats. She's sort of in a. I'll make a comparison to Mike Pence and cinema. I don't know how many people have done that before, but she has a very narrow lane because she has made both Republicans and Democrats upset for, for different reasons. Her path would be for a very left congressman, uh, a democratic congressman. Um, Republicans will portray Pete uh, Gallego, sorry, Ruben Gallego, not the congressman from Texas, Ruben Gallego as that and a polarizing Republican on the right, such as Carrie Lake. Now, if Carrie Lake, who did narrowly lose the governorship in 2022, if she can keep that consolidated Republican vote, then she could win in a three person race. And that's kind of what Republicans are having to bank on now, because it, it is clear that she would be the front runner for the Republican nomination, even though Republicans, she wouldn't be Republicans first choice to run. Um, Blake Masters did pop his head up. Uh, I thought it was interesting. The New York Times had a story about Trump calling Blake Masters and saying that he couldn't beat Lake in a primary. And I thought that was interesting that Trump was getting involved, but also that that might mean that Kerry Lake isn't as high on the potential VP list for Trump because 
he cares oh. a, he cares about her senate like why would he care if she's going to win a senate race if he's just going to pick her to be vp so that was the some of the dots i was putting together uh you know a, a subtext subtext of that but arizona this the, the the other point is that this puts democrats in dc in a very tough box because they have a former senator and they have a current democratic congressman and to be involved right now, they are just trying to, they'll just say, we want to prevent a Republican from winning, but they have not made a final decision on whether they're going to support a Senator who chose to leave the party or support a Congressman who would likely be the nominee who has chosen to stay with the party. Therefore, they're just trying to figure out the best way to, to hold the seat or make sure Republicans don't get it. Right. Uh, how about uh, another undeclared incumbent senator, Joe Manchin? Uh, he's quite publicly flirted with the idea of running on a third party ticket for president. Uh, it's 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 tough. I mean, West Virginia went for Trump, uh, what, 25 plus points? Close to 30. Yeah. Close to 30 points. Uh, it seems like it may be up or out for uh, Senator Manchin. I, th- I think that's right. For If Manchin... He says he's going to decide by the end of the year, which is close to the filing deadline. Uh, if he doesn't run, Republicans are going to win. If he does run, I think Republicans probably still win. Now, they have a primary uh, with Governor Jim Justice and Congressman Alex Mooney. Justice would starts the race in a stronger position than Mooney against Manchin. But I'm not convinced that Mooney would lose uh, would lose to Manchin either. We have to remember, Manchin has one statewide uh, I want to say a half dozen, a half dozen times, uh, but the the state is just getting more and more red. Uh, he is running on on borrowed time. I think he realizes it. I would be surprised if he runs for for reelection. Uh, you know, it depends on how he wants to how he wants how he wants to end this. Well, uh, we're also on borrowed time, Nathan. So I'm gonna I'm gonna skip over Senator Tester's reelect and and hop over to the House side. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of work on the redistricting front in states like Alabama and New York. Uh, maybe that's a little up in the air, but uh, the, depending on how the maps come out, uh, Republicans uh, Republicans have the barest of majorities in the House. And of course, all 435 seats are up uh, as they are every two years. Are there are there a couple of races that you're uh, really watching to see uh, that may be sort of bellwether indicators of how this might go? I think my my Oregon bias is going to show here. And, and then one of my favorite races is Oregon's fifth district. Uh, this is uh, partially the Willamette Valley and Portland suburbs stretching down into central Oregon and Bend, which is just exploded with growth over the last 10 years. Uh, the Republican congresswoman is uh, Lori Chavez de Reamer. Uh, this is a district that Biden won in 2020, but Republicans actually did pretty well in in 2022. Remember, they uh, about six weeks out from the 2022 elections, it looked like they were going to elect a, a governor for the first time, a Republican governor for the first time in 40 years in Oregon. And, and that ended up that the Democrat won. Uh, so this is the type of district that Democrats should be winning or need to win in order to get to the majority. Democrats have a somewhat complicated fact field, though, in that they have a, a competitive three way primary including the 2022 nominee, Jamie McLeod Skinner. Dean, you'll you'll remember that she's the one who defeated Democratic Congressman Kurt Schrader in the primary. Yes. And then Schrader was running around town and running around everywhere telling people, well, she's too left. She can't win. She can't win. Turns out 
She didn't win, but it was very close. Uh, and it was without outside help in a non-presidential year. And so there are two other candidates, uh, two other candidates running. The one who gets the most buzz is Janelle um, Bynum, who actually defeated Chavez de Reamer in two state legislative races previously. So Democrats <laughs> are excited about that. But there's just a, a lot of moving parts. But it's, you know, Democrats ability to navigate a primary presidential year versus midterm dynamic. Biden, you know, does Biden perform as well as he did in 2020? These are all questions that are relevant not only to this race, but to to, you know, the the top three dozen races around the country, because the presidential race has a very is extremely important because there's a high correlation between how a district votes for president and how it votes for the House and, and how it votes for Senate. Same for the Senate. It's hard to win a Senate race in a state where your top of the ticket is not prevailing. Right. Can we, and let's just go through, because I know your some of your listeners are probably not completely normal because they're listening. They want to get into the weeds. But <laughs> in, 2020, <laughs> in 2020, there was only one senator who, who, who won in a state that the other party's presidential candidate won, and that was Susan Collins in Maine. All the rest of the states lined up presidential and Senate, and only 16 House districts in 2020 voted for a different party for president than it did for the house. So that that's, that's what is just really uh, overshadowing all of the presidential race overshadowing all of this. And then we have that uncertainty of, you know, an aging incumbent president versus a four time indicted potential nominee. And, and how, what does that look like heading into you know, October, November of next year? We do live in interesting times. There's a lot to come. There'll be a lot more to break down. And Nathan, I hope you'll uh, come back and join me here on the podcast. Nathan Gonzalez, editor and publisher of Inside Elections. Thanks for joining me on 14th and G. Thanks, Dean. Always fun. Thanks for listening to today's podcast brought to you by the lobbying firm of Melman Consulting. For more, just type 14th and G podcast into your favorite search engine or look for 14th and G wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Beam me up, Mr. Speaker.